Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast. Do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people? <laughs> yes. He's full of common sense and wisdom. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. Today I'm joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kitty. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian, it's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and, and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. There's so many things that we can do to make America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. You know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love and for the cause, and that is exactly what we have to have. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome back to The Brian Nichols Show. I missed you. Hope you had a, a fun-filled Thanksgiving with your friends and family. And uh, hopefully you, uh, you're you getting back into the swing of things. And I'm getting back into the swing of things here. Back to our regularly scheduled programming here on The Brian Nichols Show. And today, we're going to start things off uh, for the month of December with Michael Autry. Michael is the host of his own podcast, uh, Unal- Unalienable, uh, which is a podcast about constitutional rights. He also is in the armed services. Uh, so with that, libertarian podcast host, member of the Navy, Michael Autry. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, sir. Well, listen, I, I'm glad we were able to get this conversation going. Um, you know, obviously your experience, both in terms of your your service, uh, but then also through through politics is a very interesting story. Um, so to start off, I think it'd be great for, for you to introduce yourself to my audience. Um, so that the floor is yours. All right. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's a big opportunity for me. My name is Lieutenant Junior Grade Michael Autry. I'm an officer in the United States Navy. I, I commissioned as an officer about about three and a half years ago, uh, but I was in the Navy about five and a half years before that. So all in all, about nine years I've been in the Navy, basically my entire adult life. And then earlier this year, you know, it, I kind of I kind of caught the bug. It actually kind of started with a uh, I think Joe Rogan kind of put the idea in my head that like, hey, just go for it, man. And I just I said I, I got to do it. So. I decided to start a podcast, and uh, back in April, I started Unalienable, which is a podcast all about the Constitution, and, uh, you know, it's been growing and growing. I've gotten on I've, I've, uh, I've gotten on a couple people's shows. Well, it's actually the second show I've been on, but, you know, a few bigger-time people than me have actually, re- you know, reached out or, you know, responded when I reached out, and that's gotten me, you know, it's, it's grown me a little bit since then, and uh, so, I don't know, I'm just new at this. I'm trying to, to learn all I can about the constitution and, and spread the word and, and uh, spread the message of Liberty. Well, you definitely come from a unique perspective because it's always fascinating when I see folks who are in the armed forces and yet still are uh, philosophically libertarian. And I just think that 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 must be an interesting or at the very least challenging kind of, um, kind of battle to, to, to have inside yourself to be like, man, you know, I'm, I'm practicing this, this uh this non-aggression principle philosophy of libertarianism and yet you know I'm I'm basically working for the world's largest 
<laughs> largest battle force that, that the world's ever seen. So what's that, that kind of experience like? You know, it's uh it's really interesting. Uh, I, I, I suppose it might be true that libertarians who are in the Navy or in the military in general, maybe a different breed of libertarian. Cause obviously that is something you, you see a lot of criticism about our foreign policy and about the military in general. And, and, and if not directly, aimed at the, at the troops, it's at least aimed at, you know, maybe the behavior or the policy coming from above. But um, what's funny is, I mean, uh, I believe in 2012, when, uh, when Ron Paul was running in the primary, <clears throat> he, uh, he, he, was, he actually did really, really well in the military. I know, like, at least in the polls, and I, you, know, you got to verify this, but I remember at the time, I'm pretty sure he was actually, he actually looked, was winning the mm-hmm. military vote in the polls. Yeah, him and so, uh, and Rand actually, which I think is, right. is a lot of people don't realize that those two individuals, who father and son, obviously, but they actually had the, the most support from the armed services. But right. I'm sure this is going to speak to the point you're going to make right here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it is an interesting. I mean, it's a good point. You might think that doesn't jive, but I think if there's one, you know, not to toot my own horn, but if there's one group of people in this country who love liberty more than anyone else. It's gotta be the people who are willing to, to strap on their boots and go fight for that liberty. And, you know, what policy our leaders come up with and what wars we end up fighting. Um, that's all, you know, that's all above our pay grade, but the personal decision we make is almost entirely, you know, across the board. And no matter where we are on this political spectrum, you have Democrats, Republicans, uh, we're obviously a very conservative uh, group of people as a whole. That's just anecdotal, but uh, everyone knows that, that the military is a very right-leaning organization. But that love of liberty, I think, is probably why Ron Paul's message and Rand Paul's message really resonates with people in the military. Do you find um, being a libertarian, it, do you find that that's because obviously you mentioned that there's a lot of conservatives within the military. I think a lot of people, you know, that, like you said, that's expected. Um, but the idea that libertarianism is, I don't say it's counterintuitive to the, the idea of the military, but like you'd mentioned, people do embrace the idea of non-interventionism, but I would say that that group of people, and I, I'm talking completely out of my, my element, but do you find that that is kind of a minority of military personnel, or do you think that libertarian libertarianism is actually much more prevalent in the community as a whole? I'd say there's probably a lot of different opinions about that. And again, this is all anecdotal. I can't actually speak, you know, statistically or anything, but uh, I think that there's, what's going on is that there's a few different um, principles that are kind of at odds, right? So, you know, as a voter, you know, I'm going to, I would vote in such a way where we only fight wars that we need to fight, that the wars are just, I believe in the just war theory, use in bellum and or use ad bellum and use in bellow, that we conduct ourselves the right way during war and that we only go to war for a just cause, right? So I don't think that many of the wars we've been in over the last really couple of centuries, you know, except, except for a couple, were really just wars. Um, and I would argue against them uh, philosophically. But there's another side of me that says, you know, if it's going to happen, someone's got to go do it. And 
if someone's got to do it, I want to do it. So me not being in the military isn't going to stop, you know, our leaders from picking fights that we shouldn't be picking. But if someone's going to be out there, I want it to be me. And then there's this other principle, which is just kind of a, you know, it's kind of an archaic sort of honor principle that uh, a lot of people join the military for honor. And it's, it, it's a personal thing to, to, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's a manly thing to do to go, you know, I want to go serve. I want to, I want to serve other people. Uh, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. And, uh, you know, and there's just not, I don't know where else to find that, you know, aside from being on a professional sports team or part of some, you know, organization that's really, really making the world a better place. Um, that's something I get to experience in my daily life. So, um, I don't know. It, it, it's a struggle. Uh, I think, you know, we want to, we vote, we would vote for people like Ron Paul or Rand Paul. And again, not endorse, I can't endorse one, one candidate over another when it comes to the actual election, but, um, you know, we vote that way. We think that way because we want to serve. We want to do the honorable thing, but we also want our leaders to only send us to wars that, that are actually just. Enjoying today's episode? Take a second to share today's episode with family and friends on social media. Want to do even more? Swing over to iTunes and give The Brian Nichols Show a rate and review. That makes sense. And, and this is, like, I don't know if you have an answer for this, but one thing that I find interesting is that a lot of active military personnel seem to have the same mindset that you do. But then after they are out of the military, all of a sudden they start voting for these politicians like, you know, Tom Cotton or John McCain or Lindsey Graham, who are then just mindlessly sending people overseas to, to fight these, these, these random wars that we have no business in being in. What, what happens do you think after, you know, the, the active members of the military end up, uh, you know, finishing their time in the military and now they're going into civilian life. Is there something that happens where they're no longer, you know, in the, the, the thick of things or, or is it something that the libertarian party, I guess, is not doing to bring these people in after their service is over? Yeah. Um, it, it, I think there might be a couple things. Um, I, I think the, I think often a big reason, and this is probably true for a lot of people that end up voting Republican. It, it's not that they that that really aligns with their with their worldview um, necessarily, or something like you know the examples that you gave, but it's that they just detest Democrats. And again, I, I'm not speaking. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not actually allowed to say that. But um, <laughs> so I, I'm not endorsing one side or the other. We're trying to, you know, but what I can say is when I think the problem is this dichotomy that we have, it's the duopoly. It's the fact that, you know, and this is the problem. So I'm not, I don't think that many li people in the military vote libertarian necessarily as a party. The libertarian party is a completely different animal to me than libertarianism as a philosophy. Oh, agree. hundred percent. And, yes. and it has, it has a lot of problems uh, that I think it needs to address, but I think it's harder to sell libertarian the libertarian party. It's doable, and I and I would love to get to a point where we can do that, and and people will will buy what we're selling. But I think an easier an easier case to lay out is the case for libertarianism, for liberty, and less so for the party because the party's you know been a little kooky in the past. So <laughs> um and just it's not just about that. It's it's the absolute stranglehold that the Democrats and Republicans have on our electoral system. Like there's there's nothing you can do. We're just so outnumbered and so outgunned uh by we being 
basically people who are dissatisfied with the status quo, you know, and that's why most people just don't vote. Right. And that, 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 that holds true in the military as well. Um, I think maybe as people get older, they become less ideological. This might be true in general when people get older, but certainly when people get out of the military, they're older now. And uh, so maybe that's part of it, getting older and you, and you kind of give up on that romantic dream of the third party winning and you just kind of accept the fate that you have to pick one or the other. And, you know, to a lot of libertarian minded people, not all, the idea of voting for a Democrat is pretty, you know, horrifying. I was going to say, I think we're seeing a lot of that maybe more institutionally. I say institutionally, it, we're starting to see a, a change. And I, I use Maine right now for the, the example with rank, rank choice voting, um, where we're actually seeing a an institutional change in terms of how the elections are actually done, where let's say, you know, yes, you, you absolutely cannot vote for a Democrat, but, you know, you can at least vote for the Republican as your second favorite option. And no longer do you feel like you're wasting your vote if you vote for a libertarian, because at the very least, a Democrat's going to be at the very bottom of your, your ballot. So you can vote for the libertarian principles and the libertarian ideals. But at the same point in time, you kind of have that that safety valve in behind where you can have that that GOP candidate who maybe you agree with 70 percent of the time um, or 60 percent. It's better than the, the Democratic candidate who you agree with 20 percent of the time. Want to support The Brian Nichols Show? please consider making a one-time PayPal donation at the Brian Nichols show at gmail.com or join the Patreon at B Nichols Liberty. And you know, uh, so, and maybe the other thing is, and this is, this is kind of, it, it kind of goes into the fact that I think libertarianism and, and actually, you know, I heard your most recent episode and you kind of talked about this. It is a spectrum to me. What makes libertarianism is the root word and that's Liberty. All right. Uh, I think the specifics, like, I don't think you have to be, <laughs> is going to sound really controversial. I don't think you have to be anti-war to be a libertarian. Now, I mean, I'm anti-war in that I think it should be a last resort and that it should only be for a just cause. But um, I also believe in a foreign policy where, you know, where the, the speak softly and carry a big stick, right? Mm -hmm. So if that makes me not a libertarian, then I don't know what I'm doing here. But um, I think liberty is the most important, you know, it's the most important principle and every decision we should make, we make should be based on, you know, liberty. But uh, I don't know. I, I don't see this as a, as a, as a philosophical problem any more than anyone else does. So like, you know, our, our government does lots of stuff that I disagree with. Actually, almost everything they do, I disagree with, which is what makes me a libertarian. I think not just that I'm unhappy, but I think they're all wrong and they're all doing more than they should be doing. So, you know, I think saying that, you're a libertarian, therefore you shouldn't serve in the military. It's kind of like saying you're a libertarian, therefore you shouldn't work for, I don't know, the state at all. You know what I mean? Or that you shouldn't, you know, like I'm just like, if you're, if, if, if a typical libertarian is upset about the war in Iraq and I, you know, I was, I am, um, or any particular war, you know, to me, it's the same as when Congress or when they pass Obamacare. It's, it's wrong. They shouldn't do it. It doesn't make me want to quit and just not be part of this country anymore. Or, and I, I want to fight it politically, but it doesn't make me want to, you know, it doesn't change my sense of duty that I have to serve the country. You know what I mean? So the mm -hmm. country's doing wrong things, but it's still my country and I still want to serve her. You know what I mean? So to me, I don't have a lot of trouble squaring that circle. Uh, now, granted, I, um, 
I kind of miss the war. I mean, we're still, we still have troops all over, but they're, they're basically only special forces. And a few pilots are kind of putting more heads on foreheads. But other than that, most of us in the military are pretty bored and we have been for quite a few years. So I missed it. Like I didn't go to Iraq. I didn't go to Afghanistan. Um, I've deployed, but they've been peacetime deployments where we're just ready. You know, we go to Okinawa or we go to Rota, uh, Spain or whatever. Uh, and you know, all, all, all the branches of the military do this. They, they, they forward deploy where they're just ready to go to war if need be, instead of having to deploy from California or from Virginia, we're already, you know, on watch out there. So, um, I do believe in the foreign policy of carrying a big stick, being the biggest, baddest guys on the playground, but I don't think we should actually swing at anybody unless there's a really good reason for it. So that may not be the, the smallest government, but when I want small government, I'm mostly am concerned about them interfering in our lives. And I, um, I don't know. I think something, something like um, freedom of movement on the seas, the freedom of the seas, that's something that the world benefits from because of the United States Navy. And until the United States Navy really like basically took absolute control of the seas. And that doesn't mean we were like literally running the show. It just means that we are the biggest guy on the playground. Um, so nobody's going to mess with us, but no one's going to mess with anyone else either because we will punch them in the face. So now as a result of that, nobody does mess with anybody. The, 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 the sea lanes are, are free. Like ships come and go, uh, trade ships come and go without being molested Piracy is a thing of the past, except for a few random examples in the last few years. Um, and the whole world benefits from that. Our, our economy benefits from that. Um, I don't see that as a liberty question. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, I am a non-interventionist in that I think we shouldn't go to war unless it's for a just cause. And I think most of the wars we've been in have not been a just cause, but, uh, I still want to serve and I still, you know, and it's still my country and I got to be repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> no, but well, see, that's the thing. I think a lot of people who uh, they, they dabble in, they're, they're like the libertarian curious. I think they agree with you. The problem is, is that you'll have the, the vocal minority that unfortunately comprises that group of the libertarian party. And they, they toss out all pragmatic sense of reality. And they basically say, it, it's got to be this. It has to be this philosophical purity test of saying, if you're a libertarian, you cannot believe in any foreign interventions. You you are you are, you are not to to engage in in conflict. Um, and you know the, I, I I think from a moral perspective, people agree with that. But then also from the pragmatic perspective, especially the likes of someone like yourself, who's you know currently in the armed services, but those who are uh, sympathetic towards the armed services. They say, well, we, we kind of have to, to have the ability to defend ourselves or, like you said, speak uh, softly and carry a big stick. Um, but then they, they see the, the loud voices within the Libertarian Party saying, you know, no, you can't have war. If you don't, you're, you know, you're murdering kids and, and they'll go off on some absolutely insane, you know, soliloquy about U.S. foreign interventions, which they, they have merit to, but it completely turns away potential allies and it's almost like, well, they're going to bite their nose to spite their face. What was the expression, Michael Scott, spite, to spite her face? Um, it's like, like um, that. that's the kind of mentality that people have. And 
I think we're, we're turning away so many potential allies. And then the natural inclination is a go to, well, who's the next closest person that represents my views? Oh, it's the, the Republican Party and the, uh, the conservatives. And that's where they end up. And it's, it's very disheartening because I think a lot of the folks within the, the larger, um, liberty curious, be they armed services or armed service, uh, sympathetically towards the armed services, they'd be our allies. Connect with Brian on Twitter and Facebook at B Nichols Liberty and send your comments and questions to the Brian Nichols show at gmail.com. Yeah, there's a lot of people in the military that believe in small government and not just small government like, you know, Reagan preached, but like very small government. And that, so, you know, I'm sure every time you have a libertarian on, it, it probably comes up what the definition of libertarianism is. So I'm not interested in, in the textbook definition, but let me tell you basically my philosophy and why it's so, and it kind of explains how this still works. Um, I think of myself first and foremost as a constitutionalist. And I think that doesn't, that's not necessarily in perfectly in line with libertarianism because a libertarian could argue that even the government as spelled out by the founders in our founding document was still too big. Like I think libertarianism as a philosophy just means a couple of things. First of all, that the government is necessary, but should be as small as practicable. The smallest we can get away with. Anything that they don't have to do, they shouldn't do. But there are things they have to do. That's different. That's why it's not anarchism, right? But then I think as well, I think it's all based on John Stuart Mill's harm principle, right? And that is that you should be as free as possible as long as you don't hurt anybody else. You know, like the, uh, the expression, you're free to swing your fist around, but your, your right to swing your fist ends at my nose, right? So that's what I think of when I think of libertarianism is the harm principle. Um, now, when people extend that to foreign policy, I don't know. I, logically, I get it. It makes sense. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the relationship between a government and its own people, not my government and your government or my government and your people. That's totally different. And that's, that's I'm not saying that it's not a valid point, but my interest is between a free person and the government. So I think that that's completely in line with a person who serves in the military or whatever. Um, and especially with constitutionalism. So I think myself first and foremost, as a constitutionalist, as an originalist, a federalist, right? To me, what's most important is that what the constitution says and what the original intent was, that's the government we should have. Now, when it comes to specific policy and just general philosophy, the way I vote as a free citizen is a libertarian way of voting. So, you know, when it comes to the gray areas or outside the realm of the Constitution, what should, say, your state government be able to do? What should your local government be able to do? I'm going to vote in a libertarian way. I want them to stay out of my business. So I think that's the way I see it. And that's that's how... And that's why I can I I can kind of break faith, I suppose, and and, and break and I don't know what's the opposite of save face, lose face, <laughs> <laughs> lose face with some of the more hardcore libertarians who are very anti-interventionist in foreign policy because you know I'm first and foremost a constitutionalist, and nothing about the Constitution says that we can't go to war and and impose our will on other countries if need be, right? That's just, a, that's about the philosophy of when to go to war. And that's the just war theory. But, uh, you know, 
I think one thing for sure is that wars need to be declared by Congress, right? That's what the Constitution says, and we haven't done that in a long time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm automatically against any war that isn't declared. But that said, I think even as a libertarian, there are wars, if I was, say, a congressman, I would vote for. But those wars would be in self-defense, um, in national interest, to protect our allies, but only an imminent threat to our allies. And I wouldn't want that many allies. You know what I mean? I think we have too many people that we would go to bat for. You know, it would only be very few, I think. But uh, anyway. Um, yeah. No, no. So this is the the part where I think I'm just curious because you obviously identify more as libertarian under in, if you can't answer the question, I understand. Um, but with the way our current foreign policy is um, not only under Donald Trump, but also with uh, up for the past two years, at least it was a Republican controlled house representatives as well as uh, Senate. So both branches of, of, of Congress, both chambers, not like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez there, um, but bo- both chambers actually um, being controlled by the GOP, which is supposed to be the lesser of two evils um, from the perspective of, you know, as we talked earlier from the, the armed services, what's been your opinion of, of how our foreign policy has been conducted over the past few years? Um, and do you see that getting better maybe with a, a system of government now where we have separated power within the, uh, the Congress? Um, I think as far as foreign policy, specifically with regard to use of force, uh, like actually sending troops or tomahawks, um, I'm actually, I was, I've been really disappointed with, uh, you know, with the, uh, the GOP and how they've responded. I think this is, you know, I, I think what's happened ever since, you know, President Trump took over is that basically the same policy as that Obama was criticized for has just continued. You know, uh, we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and we're finding out like, oh, someone just died in Niger, you know, and we're like, what the hell? I didn't even know we were there. You know, we have people, <laughs> you know, we're, we're fighting in Yemen, we're fighting all over and, um, you know, I'm going to do my duty and do what I'm told. And, and so far I haven't been sent to any of those. Cause like I said, that's all pretty much all special forces and, and over the horizon type of, uh, attacks. But, um, as a matter of policy, I disagree with that. Um, I think we should only go to war when it's necessary and Congress should declare war and, um, these sneaky wars that the American people don't even know about. That's so bizarre. Like we're supposed to kind of approve of it. I mean, that's the idea of having elected representatives, that vote on it is that it's kind of at least secondarily the American people have agreed to it. But when we don't even know about it, you know, how can we agree to it? I mean, no. to take it a whole, I mean, I, I had this, this kind of thought experiment in my head as of late, and I know it's very controversial, but like just looking at the the type of people who are voting and they, they, I mean, there's a, a report that came out actually it's from CNN about people who, I think it was like a third of Americans or no, it was, it was way more than that. I forget the, the percentage, like 66% or something of Americans didn't know about the constitution. Like don't, they don't know the constitution. Um, and they vote and like, these are the people who vote and it just, it infuriates me because these people don't understand that their vote. It, it's more than just whether or not your taxes get cut or not, or whether you want to increase spending or what social programs you want the government to spend on. Like you are actually determining Who's going to be in charge of the government to then push the, the button on who's going to kill what, you know, brown person over in the Middle East based on what the 
whatever the agenda item is for the day. And like the, people just don't understand the the ramifications with their vote. And it just it it really makes me question, are we in a system right now <laughs> of a democracy, um, a democratic republic um, where we're, we're comfortable with our citizenry just being able to to cast a vote and having no idea what they're voting for. I mean, back in, if we want to really go all the way back to when we were a founding nation, like it was no understood that, you know, you, this, this was like one of the most important things you could do to vote for the, those who would be representing you in government. Like that was one of the, the foundational principles. And now it's just, it's, it's such an afterthought because we're so, you know, we're so desensitized to the actual impact of our vote. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of going off there, but I'm just, I don't know what the answer is. And that's the part that frustrates me is because it, as soon as you start talking about, you know, how do we effectively make sure the right people are voting, it, it turns into, well, you know, the, you're talking about Jim Crow laws or, or poll taxes. I'm like, no, not, not, not even in the slightest. I mean, one idea I've been bouncing around, and I know there's a lot of questions with this, but, you know, in order to be a United States citizen, new immigrants have to pass a basic citizenship test. And it would stand to reason that if you were a citizen to vote and you had to be a citizen to vote, then you should be able to pass a basic citizenship test. So then, then is, is I know I can just see the people's heads exploding me saying this, but it would stand to reason that in order to vote, you should have to pass a basic citizenship test, not because of, you know, we're trying to, to stop people from voting, but because I want people who are voting actually knowing the basic foundational structure of our government. I want you to know that we have a president in the executive branch and then his his cabinet. I want you to know that we have two bicameral chambers of of Congress with the house that represents the the the, the will of the people, the more uh close to the people um chamber versus the Senate which was intended to be, you know, more of through the times. That's why this two years terms versus six year terms from the house and the Senate. I want people to understand that the Supreme Court it's not supposed to be a another or another legislative branch that just changes laws. It's supposed to rule on the constitutionality of the executive as well as the legislative branches, and to know checks and balances and just like this basic civics is completely forgotten nowadays. And as someone who I'm very passionate about politics, and I'm very passionate about civics. I, mean, I went to college for for political science and, and a concentration in American and and U.S. government. Like to to see just people be like meh. Uh, whatever. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. Like if you, that's how you're going to approach your vote, then I don't want you voting. Like whether it's legal or like whether we make it a a law or not to say you have to pass a basic citizenship test. I myself just saying, I don't want you voting. Don't the whole, you know, get out and vote campaigns or the the vote or die. Like, no, don't vote. Just stay home because you don't know what you're voting for. Yeah. I actually have it um, handy, the stats, but, uh, it was this Anberg public policy, uh, Institute did this, mm-hmm. is a survey and it was last summer. So it was really recent, but said that more than half of Americans incorrectly think that it's accurate to say that immigrants who are here illegally don't have any rights under the constitution. Uh, 37% can't name any of the rights guaranteed under the first amendment. And only a quarter of Americans can name all three branches of government. So you're right. It's it's really sad. It, and it's infuriating because we've and, and I don't know if you noticed this after the election, but like especially on social media, which I know Twitter's not real life, but let's be real, like there's a lot of people who are on Twitter who are very representative of what people think or don't think. And yeah. um there was this big 
um, push about we need to change the U.S. Senate because they show that uh, the, the, the Democratic candidates won a quote-unquote majority of the votes nationally, and yet then they showed that Republicans gain seats. It's like, that that's not how this works. Number one, yeah. that's not how this works. But number two, it was supposed to work the way that you're saying you don't like it to work because of the very <laughs> fact that you're talking about the House of Representatives. That's why we have a bicameral chamber. Like, that's the whole yeah. intention of it. But people get yeah. into this mindset of, you know, just regurgitating whatever the <clears throat> the progressive talking point is. And and then people, that, that becomes their, their thought, but they have no reason to... They have no understanding of how they got to that thought. They were just, I mean, <laughs> it's the NPC meme. It's like, you know, you were told this by angry, progressive, blue checkmark person on Twitter. Yeah. Now you, this is your marching orders. You you say it. And then when you get asked why, you go blue screen and you have no idea what to say. And it's yeah. like, and that's just, that's, that's what's happening. And it's so yeah. frustrating because people aren't questioning. They're not asking why. And those who do ask why were the bad guys and we're the ones who are getting silenced in social media or, yeah. you know, they're, they're being deplatformed. I don't know what the answer is. It's, it's a scary world to be in right now, obviously. Um, but I digress, but yeah, no, it, <laughs> it, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I've seen all the same stuff and this is kind of this weird new talking point, uh, you know, just in the last few months, uh, well, it's been around for a while, but it's kind of taken hold lately. And that is, you know, the Supreme court, needs to no, we need to stack the Supreme court, uh, get rid of the electoral college and turn the Senate into another house of representatives. It's like these people, uh, these people are just so consequentialist. They just can't get over the fact that they lost. And that, like, that's the only reason they feel that way. It's not a principled position. They're not, they don't really believe in democracy or in the majoritarianism. They just lost. So they're pissed. Right. So, like I think people advocating for the end of the electoral college are, are just, I mean, with a few exceptions who've actually looked into it and maybe try and make some valid point, which most people that, that say that are just so, so constitutionally ignorant. They have no idea what the point was and they haven't even taken a moment to think about it. And it's so obvious when you think about it, it's like, no, the exact argument you're making is not new. This was, this, they've been fighting about this from the very beginning. Obviously, Virginia, who had 20 times more people, you know, or they don't know. So they own 20. They had 20 percent of the population and they still only got two senators. You don't think that pissed them off. But that was the point. It was a it was a compromise. A bicameral legislature was a compromise. If they didn't do that, if they didn't have equal representation, then only like three states would have signed the Constitution. That's that's how it works. This is not a new argument. And and the fact that California has however many million people and Iowa has so many fewer, that isn't even that different than how it was at the beginning. Again, 20% of the population Virginia had, but they only had one thirteenth of the senatorial votes. That's just how it always has been. And this is actually something I recently discovered, and I discovered it by accident. Just ha I just happened to be reading Article 5 of the Constitution because... I saw something on an article that I thought was wrong. So I had to verify it myself and it turns out it was wrong, but that's not the point. I never noticed. Cause again, I'm new at this, right? I am learning the constitution as I go through this and it's kind of a formative experience for me. And that's what I'm sharing with my, with my listeners, but I just learned, I haven't talked about this yet in an episode. So I'm talking about it with you for the first time. The very last sentence of article five says 
or I guess it's, it's not a sentence. It's like a, what do you call it? A clause all right, of, of article five. When it says, you know, that with three fourths of the, of the, of the States, you can ratify a new constitutional amendment. Basically it says you can, you can amend the constitution, but it says at the end, provided that no amendment, no amendment, which may be made prior to, okay, blah, blah, blah. Skip that part. Um, sorry. So provided that no amendment, that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. The only thing that the founders specified could never be amended is the equal suffrage in the Senate. There's nothing that Democrats can do about that. That's the most beautiful thing here that I just figured out, and I can't wait to talk about it on my show, is that they can cry and cry all they want to. They could change the Electoral College. They can stack the courts. There is nothing they can do to change the two, or doesn't have to be two, but the equal suffrage mm-hmm. in the Senate. It specifically says you can't amend the Constitution to do that in Article 5. How beautiful is that? It's like, eat it. <laughs> so I, I yeah. love it. Well, you don't even have to be afraid of that. So, I was say, well, there, we've obviously seen that there's been a push to, uh, to, to kind of manipulate it. So like with the direct election of, of U.S. senators versus it being chosen by the um, – by chosen by the state legislatures themselves. So like, right. I'm sure they're, they're, they'll look for some weasel way to get around it. Um, which I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, it's yeah. kind of like the free market approach. Like if there's a law, let's figure out how to get around the law <laughs> so we can make it. So sure. like Uber, we're not a taxi service. We're a ride sharing service. And that's yeah. the beauty of that. But yeah, like, we can maybe find some way to effectively do it, but, it, but we can, you can, we can rest assured that at least when it comes to amending the constitution, they could get 99% of the people in all the states to, well, in 99% of the states, whatever, if you can get 49 states to agree that we want proportional representation in the Senate and it still is unamendable. <laughs> so eat it. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, Michael, we're getting close to the uh, the end of the show and I, I want to, to give you a quick chance to, to plug some other ventures you do. So, um, I know you had in a more of a, an eclectic podcast that you also host on the the side of Inalienable. Give us a a sneak behind the curtain what that is. Yeah. Okay. So I, uh, I started Unalienable in April, and that's just that's a monologue. I have I've had a couple interviews, but mostly on monologue, um, where I just kind of talk about a specific issue, and it's kind of long and drawn out history and explanation. And then I started more recently in August, I believe it was, with a buddy of mine, uh, a, a a podcast called philosophication with ginger and the beard because I have red hair and he has a beard. So, uh, he's, he's my old buddy. We went, we went to the Naval Academy together. Uh, he's a civilian now, but, um, you know, we just always had these conversations. Like it's kind of weird for, for a while now we've had these like a standing date basically to have a con like to just talk about whatever we thought of over the week and just like deep philosophical, political, whatever. And we'd have these long talks and like, at least, you know, some of the times when it was over, I'd be like, damn, I wish we recorded that. That was such a good conversation. And, uh, you know, so that popped in our head once after a really great conversation. It's like, why don't we do that? So basically, um, it's just kind of, there's no limit to what we'll talk about. It's, it's, uh, so far it's been basically whatever current events we think of kind of like the conversations we have, but, uh, you know, our first episode ever, we talked about the, uh, dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the atomic bombs. Uh, so, and the, and the, the, the moral argument there, we kind of just dug into that. So very deep, very important conversation we had. Um, and, uh, you know, 
we'll go anywhere. We'll talk about Star Wars. We'll talk about whatever. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I got this eclectic dialogue podcast called Philosophication with Ginger and the Beard. And then my monologue podcast, which is all about the Constitution, uh, called Unalienable. So you can find either of those if you just Google it. But it's on all the podcast services. You know, I, I try to catch all of them. If there's one that I'm not on, I try and add it and people let me know. Um, and on YouTube as well. Um, so, and then on, you know, on Twitter and I'm just Michael Autry at Michael Autry, that's A U T E R Y. Um, so pretty easy to find me if you spell it the right way, A U T E R Y. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll absolutely be sure to include the, uh, the links, not only to your shows, um, but also where people can find you there on social media, uh, in the show notes as well. Um, but with that, Michael, thank you so much, man, for taking the, uh, the time to join me tonight. And uh, I think it's a really great perspective to have someone who's in our armed services to talk about these issues, not only the issues, but also the uh, the philosophy behind the issues. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the uh, the idea of being more of a federalist, constitutionalist country um, that can base their their policies and principles on the, the libertarian philosophy. I think that's the way that we'll, we'll hopefully see things turn down the road. I know with the, the Libertarian Party's lack of success in recent years, we've seen um, various quote-unquote free market uh, solutions like that of the Federalist Party of America t- popping up, the Constitution, uh, Constitutionalist Party as well. Um, so yeah, I think we definitely have a beacon of, of light coming down at the end of the tunnel, fingers crossed, uh, and at least with, with those uh, representatives like Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, and, and the like. So uh, with that being said, Michael, thank you so much again for, for taking the time to join me in the Brian Nichols Show. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed today's uh, episode, please feel free to swing over to uh, my Twitter at B Nichols Liberty and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. Also, feel free to share today's episode with your family and friends. You can find the show over on iTunes, really anywhere where podcasts are found. But until next time, it's Brian Nichols signing off from the Brian Nichols Show for Michael Autry. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.